story is told that St. Francis of Assisi once invited a young monk to accompany him to town to preach. And this novice was honored at the opportunity to accompany him, and the two set out for the city and walked up and down the main street, several side streets. They chatted with peddlers and greeted the citizens. And after some time, they returned by another route to the abbey. And the younger man reminded Francis of his original intent. He said, you have forgotten, Father, that we went to town to preach. My son, he replied, we have preached. We've been seen by many. Our behavior was closely watched. Our attitudes were closely measured. Our our words have been overheard by many. And it was by thus that we preached our morning sermon. The world is watching the way we act much closer than they are listening to what we say. Now, we do need to tell them the gospel. But if it's not followed up by action, the words fall flat. Our Christianity becomes real to people, not solely when we quote the Bible to them with our lips, but when we demonstrate it to them with our lives. In letters to rulers of people, again, Francis of Assisi also wrote these words. He said, quote, keep a clear eye toward life's end. Do not forget your purpose and destiny as God's creature. What you are in his sight is what you are and nothing more. Remember that when you leave this earth, you can take with you nothing that you have received fading symbols of honor, trappings and power, but only what you have given. A heart full, enriched by honest service, love, sacrifice, and courage. Now that's a mouthful on the importance of being real to the people around us as Christians. But you say that was Francis of Assisi, a glorious example of Christ-likeness. Not the normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill person like me. You're making a very unfair comparison, Pastor. Don't fool yourselves. Authenticity, folks, is not an elective in the curriculum of everyday Christianity. It is a required course, and the exams are very tough to pass. But they can be passed by those who are serious about their faith. As we've been working through Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, these last few weeks, we've been learning that a Christian lifestyle that will be believable to those around us calls for certain character traits. Authentic, unprovoked love was the first one in verse 9. Strong personal relationships that selflessly serve each other within the family of faith was the second in verses 10 to 13. And then in verses 14 to 16, for a couple of weeks, we looked at the the ability to display a Christ-like attitude toward those outside the faith. But there is one trait, however, which we alluded to last time, but which truly puts our faith to the test more intensely than all the other things that we've looked at so far because it probes this really super-sensitive area of our lives, our capacity to forgive people even when It's undeserved. If Paul says, 
that unconditional, unprovoked love, agape love, is the basis of our credibility, then it will not only play itself out by showing it to the most of these, so to speak, that's those like-minded fellow Christians that we rub shoulders with from week to week in the church, not just to them, but also to the least of these, those are the hurting, spiritually needy and marginalized of the world, but it's also going to become evident as we love the worst of these. In other words, your enemy, your enemy. The worst of these, as one man put it, is that person that you have least reason to like and most reason to hate. It's the person who has betrayed you, the person who has hurt you, willfully misunderstood you, taken something precious from you. We especially need love, unconditional love here, for it embodies a power in excess of our natural impulse toward hate or fear. It exerts a pull stronger than our hankering for frontier justice, deeper than our lust for vengeance. As we touched on it last time, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Listen again to Jesus' charge. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than they? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We, we quoted that verse last week. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, even pagans love those who love them. You don't require supernatural strength to do that. But to love those whom you have every reason in the world to hate, every reason to hurt, personal reasons, visceral reasons, historical reasons, doctrinal reasons, deep-rooted and long-standing reasons, that takes the Son of God within you to do. Paul's exhortations in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, make up this sort of final exam in this text in the course of Christianity. And it can be summarized in a few simple words. Verses 17 to 21 can be summarized like this. Our authenticity, as well as our credibility as Christ-following people, will rise or fall on our ability to love those who oppose us. Let me say that again. Our authenticity as well as our credibility as Christ followers will rise or fall on our ability to love those who oppose us. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21 with me. I'm going to read down through those verses. Paul says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Anyone? Anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Man, I got a million things going through my head right now. Frontline political type stuff. The things we all argue about on Facebook. You could put right under the umbrella of these verses and all arguments would cease. As we unfold this passage, the first thing you need to know is that this context is critical. It's critical not just to the Romans, it's critical to you and me. Paul's not addressing the concepts here of countries going to war or the state bringing criminals to justice. First of all, get that right out of your mind. That's not what he's talking about in this context. He addresses that in the next chapter, chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. So what Paul is clearly identifying here in context is our personal responsibility as individual followers of Christ in the face of our enemy's opposition. Okay? So far, you following? You tracking with me? I guarantee you're not going to like any of this. But I'm sure that Jesus didn't cherish the thought of being crucified either. Scripture says that he endured it. He despised the shame of it, but he did it for the joy of the ultimate good that came on the other side of it. And you know what that was? Your salvation and mine. So how do we love our enemies? How do we respond in love to the so-called worst of these? Well, first of all, Paul says, by personally refusing to retaliate when we are wrong. Look at verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Refuse to retaliate. Ben Franklin said it this way. He said, doing an injury puts you below your enemy. Revenging one makes you but even with him. Forgiving that injury sets you above him. It's not that complicated. It's hard to do, yes. But it means dying to self. Paul says a Christian's attitude in adverse situations plays a very, very important role in, in, in how the world views us. The idea of I don't get mad, I get even, it's not a Christ-like response. Sorry, it's not, according to Paul. What the Holy Spirit is trying to get across here is that we are never to pay back evil done to us with another evil. Don't stoop below the level of your enemies. The attitude of getting even does not reflect the character of Christ, no matter how much that person deserves it. Again, do not misinterpret Paul's counsel here. He's not implying that a nation should not have laws through which evildoers are brought to justice. That's not what he's saying here. Paul's talking about private, personal revenge. Vigilante justice is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a Christian concept. Maybe you don't take the law into your own hands, but let's look at it on a smaller scale. How many of us try to get even with others 
with your words. What little scathing remark have you made to get back at somebody, either on Facebook or in person? What gossip have you spread? How about as a boss or a supervisor or ministry leader? Do you manipulate situations and put people in positions designed to teach them a lesson? I've seen it happen, haven't you? Maybe you've been the victim of it. It's kind of a subtle thing. It's veiled, yet subtle slaying is nonetheless slaying, isn't it? Veiled vengeance is still vengeance, and Paul says don't do it. Refuse to retaliate when you're wronged. Instead, he urges us to develop a positive response. Secondly, by personally resolving to reflect what is right. Verse 17 again, respect what is right in the sight of all men. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 15 says this, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Resolving to reflect what is right in the sight of all men is a twofold process according to this verse. Pick it apart with me. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Number one, it's a process which requires intentional preparation. Intentional preparation. It says respect what is right. And in the ESV renders it like this. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In the original language, what it's really getting at here is that it means thinking something through beforehand in advance of your action. In other words, to say it another way, it's premeditated goodness. Premeditated goodness. Honestly now, how many of us actually premeditate our plan of action to reflect kindness in the face of evil situations? Do you do that? Do you premeditate it? I don't, normally. We need to start thinking that way, especially now in these last days. Do you actually think about and pray about how you will act when you encounter an antagonistic family member? Yeah, I've heard people plan how they're going to react, and it's not usually in a positive way. Have you ever searched the Scriptures to map out exactly how you will show love and kindness to another person, maybe even another Christian with whom you do not get along? Or do you simply have a knee-jerk reaction when the moment comes without thinking about it, without consideration, without submitting yourself to the Holy Spirit's control? This can go even as, as, as far as having an argument with your child or your wife or your husband or your parent. You think about how you're going to react positively to them? Premeditate goodness? I've heard it said on numerous occasions that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it. It's true, isn't it? I'm convinced that it is true. If we leave ourselves open to reacting according to the heat of our passions, chances are, you know what's going to happen? We're going to react wrong. 
You got to premeditate good action, but it does us no good just to think about it and not follow through with it. Resolving to reflect what is right is not only a process which requires intellectual preparation, but it also is a principle which must be visibly practiced. Look at verse 17 again. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, in the sight of all men, right? The words honorable here or right refers to that which is seen outwardly as good. It's the outward expression of what is inwardly good. He's saying act outwardly what you are as a Christ follower inwardly. We got to start thinking about the way to respond to every situation in light of that because our outward actions are a reflection of what we really are like inside. And we're either children of God or we are not. Right? Make no mistake about it, the world is making their assessment by the way that we live. Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. So we need to be people who are living their lives inside out. Inside out. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 begins this way. Be careful. Be careful how you live among your unbelieving neighbors. Even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will believe and give honor to God when he comes to judge the world. It is God's will that your good lives should silence those who make foolish accusations against you. You're not slaves, Peter says. You're free, but your freedom is not an excuse to do evil. You are free to live as God's slaves. Show respect for everyone. Love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God, show respect for the king. That's a hard one, isn't it? Especially in a free country where we are free to speak our mind against the king. And boy, we do. But Paul says, show respect for the king. I mean, Peter. You know, and the king, when he was writing this, was way worse off than our leaders. See, we do this, as the Scripture says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Lights in the world. The word for lights is the word from which we derive our English word photo. And a photograph is simply an impression left from a light source. Friends, in the spiritual realm, you and I are photographs to the world of Jesus Christ. We leave an impression directly related to the kind of light that we reflect. Amen? 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says this, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. Let me read it to you as Eugene Peterson paraphrased it in his message, the message. Because this one really smacks us in the face. 
This, in essence, he says, is the message we've heard from Christ and are passing on to you, that God is light, pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in him. If we claim that we experience a shared life with him and continue to stumble around in the dark, we're obviously lying through our teeth. We're not living what we claim. That puts it on the line, doesn't it? Because every picture tells a story. And if you and I are photographed, so to speak, of what Jesus is, what story do our actions tell the world around us? Are we spiritually photogenic? Or are we a per- people who don't photograph well as Christians? And Paul says that as children of God, you and I should be reflecting what is good. Believe me, I understand that you can't always tell the true story or the whole story from a picture, right? You can't tell it from a picture in the paper or on your news feed. But friends, people ought to be able to see the story of Jesus Christ when they look at you and when they look at me. Shouldn't they? Resolve, Paul says, to reflect what is right in the sight of all men, especially in front of those who actively oppose us. And oftentimes, the result is quite dramatic. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 7 says this, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, remember Proverbs. Proverbs is not formulaic. Basically, it's talking about principles. Generally speaking, I mean, there are times when you do show the love of Christ in the face of your opposition and your enemies don't become at peace with you. But generally speaking, it works. As in all Proverbs, it's a general principle of truth. You know, there are times that people are going to hate you especially when you reflect the light of Christ. Is that right? In fact, they're going to cause trouble for you because you show the light of Christ. That's precisely why Paul includes verse 18 in this text. Look at it, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So refuse to retaliate when someone wrongs you. Resolve to reflect what's right in the sight of everybody. And then regardless of the reaction of other people, we need to take love one step further by personally resigning to restore relationships that are strained through peace. Look at verse 18 again. So if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, you be at peace with all men. There's an old African proverb that says this, he who forgives ends the quarrel. It's true, isn't it? We must take the initiative. It's always our responsibility to make peace. Inevitably, there will be people who will not want to make peace. That's why he says if it's possible. And he's referring to what is in your power to do. Paul's really getting personal here. He's digging right in to where it hurts us. He says it's a, personal, it's a personal possibility. As far as it depends on us, you are to make the attempt. But if the other party refuses, then you have done your part. We have no control over someone else's actions. We don't have any control over somebody else's reactions. But the lack of peace should never be on the part of the Christian, right? We must do everything 
in our power, as Christ did, short of compromising the truth to restore relationships and make peace even with our enemies. No question, it's going to take two to make peace, but the impasse should not come from us. And by the way, there is a difference between making, and I've said this a hundred times, there is a difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. James chapter 3, verse 18 says this, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of goodness. Friends, I'm not blind to the fact that Jesus was surrounded by trouble during the course of his life. There were a lot of people who were not at peace with Jesus. Is that right? But whose fault was that? Was it Jesus' fault? Never. In fact, his whole life and his whole death was doing good and making reconciliation and making peace through the blood of his cross, the Scripture says, right? Especially in the last few weeks of his life, he had major opposition. But know this, Jesus wasn't the cause of trouble by selfishly demanding his own rights. Never. On the contrary, he willingly laid down his rights. It's not always possible for you to be at peace with everyone. They might not accept it, but it is always possible as followers of Christ to be peace lovers, peace livers, and peacemakers in this world when we give ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit. Peacemaking, then, Paul says, is a personal responsibility, possibility and responsibility, and it must be a personal pursuit as well. He says, be at peace with all men. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, make every effort then to live in peace with all men and to be holy because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Make every effort. But our first reaction when we're wrong is generally, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind, right? And well, as one man has said, giving away pieces of your mind is, is very poor business, Why? Because we can't afford it. For one thing, we don't have that much mind to spare, right? And we would have more peace, P-E-A-C-E, of mind if we gave away far fewer pieces of our mind, right? One man said something like this. He said, when you play the game, you may win or you may lose, but for certain you will be wounded, And to deal with that hurt, you need the greatest kind of grace available, the grace to forgive. Of all the people in the world, Christians should be about the practice of making peace as often as they can. They ought to be bringing an air of peace to family quarrels, attempting to resolve relational conflicts in a church, determined to end arguments, always endeavoring to bring about reconciliation. Why? Because they are sons and daughters of God Almighty, the greatest reconciler and peacemaker in the universe. And where is children? Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The fruit of the Spirit Folks, it's not a clenched fist, but a bowed heart. It's love. 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is. And there is no law in the land against that. The ultimate example of all this, of course, is Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 53, in verse 7, it says that he was treated harshly but endured it humbly. He never said a word. Like a lamb about to be slaughtered, like a sheep about to be sheared, he never said a word. People come up to me and say, well, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just shut up and take it? Well, I don't know. You read Isaiah 53, 7, and you tell me what that says. Tell me what Jesus did. I don't have all the answers. The Word of God does, and Jesus' life does. Someone once asked me this provocative question. You've heard me talk about this before, and we're going to talk about it next week. They asked me, Russ, and I get this question quite often when I teach on verses like this. Where is the line between being a doormat and being Christ-like? And I've often pondered and prayed about that question. And in that moment, God gave me an answer for that man. The answer I'd been seeking for years. And next week, I'll give it to you. (laughs) But know this. Jesus gave his life for you and for me. He laid down his rights. He, for his part, was at peace with all men, even in the face of the harshest opposition, the worst of these. And it cost him. And it will cost us as well. Peacemaking is costly business. People will take advantage of you. They will exploit your good heart. They will use you. And they will turn on you and emotionally crucify you. You can count on that. What happens then? What do we do then? Well, that's what next week's focus is all about as we wrap up this series. Let's bow for prayer. And I'd like to pronounce upon you a prayer blessing, a Franciscan benediction. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers and half-truths and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger, righteous anger, at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice and freedom and peace. And may God bless you with tears, to shed for those who suffer pain and rejection and hunger and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all of our children and the poor as well. I pray it for Jesus' sake and for the sake of his name. Amen.